Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn me to Philippians chapter 1. If you are new with us and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Right at the end of the service, you can go out and uh, there's an information desk. We would love to give you a Bible. Over the last 10 weeks, I've been inviting you to turn to Exodus. Now we're in Philippians, which is a little book in the New Testament toward the end of the New Testament. And we're going to spend the next 10 or 11 weeks uh, in this book, kind of working our way through it. I'm excited about it. I, I love starting new things. It's kind of my personality. I love starting new series. And this series called Audacious Joy is going to be one, I think, through which the Spirit of God really works as we look at how Paul could have such incredible joy even in the middle of the most difficult, most trying circumstances. I think there's much that we can learn from it as we deal with you know, encouragement in our own lives uh, as we live on this uneven planet and we deal with a pandemic and all kinds of other stressors, I think that uh, this is going to be a very helpful series, I hope. Uh, well, uh, back in the good old days, by which I mean about six months ago when you could go to a theater and you could sit down and you could watch a movie together and you could eat popcorn that you didn't have to slide under your mask. Uh, back when in those days, Janine and I and uh, our youngest daughter went to see this movie called Little Women. Maybe you've seen it. Um, uh, maybe I just lost a little bit of respect uh, from you men in the room, but uh, hopefully I can gain it back over time. It was actually a very good movie. It was entertaining, well-written, uh, well-acted. In fact, I think it uh, actually was up for several Academy Awards and maybe, maybe won one or two. It tells the story of four sisters, uh, as I recall, Joe, Meg, Amy, and Beth, who live in Concord, Mass., uh, in the latter part of the 19th century. And their father's away at war, and they're sort of industrious young ladies. Well, on one particular scene, the, they get a letter back from Dad, who's away. And when the letter is read, all the girls sort of crowd around, jostling for position to hear what Dad has to say. Dad's gone, but they know that Dad loves them, and they want to hear from him. Well, the book of Philippians is actually a letter. And uh, much like many of the other New Testament letters, it was written to a specific group of people for a specific purpose to address specific issues, and it was meant to be read to the church at Philippi. And when it was read, much like the situation in Little Women, when it was read, the church congregation would gather around, listening intently and excitedly to hear what their spiritual father had to say to them. And there was much, of course, that he had to say. Uh, we're going to look at this letter again over the next 10 to 11 weeks. This morning will be kind of the intro and we're going to see three things this morning. Why does Paul begin the letter the way that he does? Uh, why does he feel the way he feels about these people? And what is his hope for every reader, not just first century, but today, every reader of that letter? So why does he begin the way he does? Why does he feel the way he does about these people? And what does he hope for every reader? Let's begin. Let me, I'll read the first six verses. We'll cover uh, verses 1 through 11, but... The word of the Lord reads this way, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
So if you were to go back and read some of the letters of antiquity in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, even ancient Israel, you would see that almost all of them begin with the same sort of greeting. It's a very standard greeting. It's the, it begins with the introduction of the author, and then it moves on to the, the intended recipients. And then there's some sort of well-wishing, some sort of, you know, I pray that all is well with you or whatever. And this letter, of course, begins similarly, almost exactly the same way, with the same uh, standard format. But this is not an impersonal letter. You ever get letters in the mail that, that attempt to sound so personal, um, but you know it's just a form letter that's written to thousands of people? Maybe even, I got one the other day that was written that said, Hey, John, with an exclamation point. And it looked like the font they used was supposed to look like a handwritten uh, letter. But I knew that it was just a printed letter that went out to thousands of people. Of course, it was given away, uh, the fact that we weren't really good friends, by the fact they misspelled my name. Um, somehow I've gotten in this data- database where uh, I get letters to John Flown, F-L-O-A-N. So I realized when I read this, okay, we, this guy, th- whoever's sending this is not really a good friend if they don't know my name. Um, but they get the, we get these letters, and it looks like, it's supposed to look like it's very familiar, but it's actually fake familiarity. It's not real friendship. Uh, Well, not so with the letter of Paul to the Philippians. It was familiar and personal from the very outset, even if he employed a somewhat standard greeting. Uh, This phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is not a throwaway sentence. It's actually packed with significance. Because remember, this is coming from a man who persecuted the disciples of Jesus, This is coming from a man who hated Jesus and all the so-called followers of the way. This is coming from a man who was there when Stephen was martyred and, in fact, gave the green light to that murder. He held the coat for the people who would stone Stephen so that those people uh, doing this terrible act wouldn't get blood on their clothes. This is a guy who had blasphemed the name of Christ, who was anti-Jesus and his followers, the guy who actually should have received, what, the greatest judgment a guy who should have received condemnation. But what does he get instead? He gets grace and mercy. And so when Paul begins this letter by saying grace to you and peace from God our our Father, again, this is a very intentional thing. Why did he begin all his letters with this phrase, grace and peace? Because that's the foundation of his new life in Christ. He knows that it was grace that, that taught his heart to fear, and it would be grace that would relieve his fears. It was grace that saved a wretch like him. It was grace that had brought him to where he was, and it was grace that would lead him home. And Paul wants his readers, who would be constantly inclined to focus either on their own failures or their good works, he wants them to understand that they are what they are only and exclusively by God's grace. Uh, Peter O'Brien, who's written what's sort of widely considered the most thorough of the commentaries on Philippians, he writes this, Paul's use of charis, which is the, the Greek word for grace, in his greetings indicates a prayerful concern for his readers. He desires that the Philippians may apprehend more fully the grace of God in which they already stand. So here's why Paul begins this letter the way that he does. This is our first point. God's grace is strength for the sufferer, comfort for the beleaguered, and the only hope for the wanderer. 
Now, I use those particular scriptures intentionally because these are all things that the church at Philippi would go through. They would, in fact, suffer. They would suffer financially. We know this from the other New Testament letters. Uh, They would suffer relationally. They would suffer vocationally. Some would lose their jobs because their allegiance to Christ. And so they would suffer, and they would become beleaguered, which is just a word that means worn out, tired, overwhelmed. They would suffer these things, and they would also be inclined to give in and to give up. And Paul reminds them that it's only by God's grace that they will persevere. In fact, he says in verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, the same one who chose you before you were born, before the foundation of the world, the same one who made you alive spiritually, who gave you eyes to see, the same one who quickened your dead heart, the same one who forgave all your sins, he will also see you through to the end. That's why I called, uh, the, they gave the title of the sermon, Preserving Grace. It's all because of the work of God in Christ. Now let's look at why Paul felt the way he did about these people. Let me read, read verse 3 and then we'll scan down to verses 7 and 8. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Then down to 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, normally when you're communicating with someone, it's not best to use such extreme language. It's not best to say always, never, all, none. You know, you might hear this in your house. Uh, you know, Why is it that I'm always the one putting away the dishes after dinner? Why is it that you never end up putting your clothes in the dirty clothes basket? Why is it that you never allow me to finish my sentences? Why is it that you always seem think you're right? It's not usually wise to use those extremes of always and never, which is why I personally never do that. But, but if you see, that can initially put somebody on the defensive. It can put somebody... Because they can think, well, surely you don't mean that. Surely it's not really to that extent. And yet Paul says, he uses these repeatedly in this section. He says, in all my remembrance, I always pray for you. I pray for you all. I yearn with you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It almost seems like a little overkill, doesn't it? It almost seems like a little extra. Like, okay, I mean, really? You really pray for us? Every time you pray, you're always praying for us? Paul writes at a time when the Stoics had a huge influence. And the Stoic philosophy of life was just be cool. Don't be upset. Don't be vulnerable. Don't get hurt. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. And then here's this letter from Paul saying, look, I love you so much. I always think about you. I love you all the time. I'm always praying for you. So it seems like it's a little bit over the top, but really what he's doing there is he's actually expressing the depth of his love for these people. Now, why does he love them so much? Why such lavish expression? Well, a little history is necessary. Uh, and when you, know, when you start a new series, there, there is a temptation, and I actually face this temptation, to, 
to just spend 30 or 35 or 40 minutes just talking about historical background. And, you know, that's a way to lose people for sure. So what I'm going to do is I want over the next 10 weeks, I'm going to sort of drop some historical knowledge on you each week rather than spend the whole time talking about historical background. But we know from Acts 16 that during Paul's second missionary journey, which you know, this is probably around A.D. 50, which means it's about a decade and a half after, a little bit more than that, after Jesus was crucified. Paul's on this missionary journey, and he arrives in Philippi, and almost as soon as he got there, you know, things got pretty ugly, frankly. Philippi was a large uh, and very important city at the time. I'll tell you more about that in, in the upcoming weeks. It was a Roman colony, even though it wasn't in Rome. Um, in fact, it wasn't even in Italy, uh, but it was a Roman colony. It had, they had favor from uh, the Caesar. And uh, when Paul's in Philippi, he does what he always does when he visits a new city. He goes, he starts looking for Jewish people with whom he can share the gospel. Because Jesus' story comes out of the Israel story naturally, and because Paul himself was a Jew, this is a, a, a regular fit for him. But Paul discovers, as he goes in this city of Philippi, that there's virtually no Jewish influence there at all. In fact, there's not even a Jewish synagogue. Now, in order to have a Jewish synagogue in a city, all you needed was really 10 males. And there apparently weren't even 10 males there in order to establish a synagogue. And so Paul's, he's going, he's in the city, He's walking around, he and, his, he and his companions went somewhere around Galatia, you know, ish. He picked up a couple of other travelers. Um, uh, of course, he's with Silas. He's also got Timothy who joined him, who's uh, sort of his young protege in the faith, and this, as well as Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and the book of Acts, kind of one uh, two-part uh, story. And so he's got these other fellow companions with him of Jewish heritage. So they have all this Jewish heritage, and they're right in the middle of this city, which is basically totally Greek. But he does find out that there are some people, there are a few worshipers of Yahweh, the, this God of Israel, and they're down at a river, and they're praying to the God of Israel. Now, these weren't followers of Jesus, okay? These were just worshipers of the God of Israel. They're down, they're praying. So Paul goes down, to the river, and he shares the gospel with them. And incredibly, some of them end up putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Among them is a lady by the name of Lydia. And Lydia is a very prominent woman. Uh, she, she owns her own sort of textile business. She makes purple cloth, which was a big deal back then. And uh, she actually becomes the first person in Europe to turn in faith to Jesus. And, you know, if you've ever been around somebody who's a new convert, she's fired up about Jesus. And so she says to Paul and his companions, she said, you can't go. You must stay with me. Come and stay at my house. And so they go there, and they start meeting together as a church. They're praying together. They're, they're reading the Hebrew Scriptures together. Uh, they are uh, eating together. They're enjoying each other in fellowship. And that really becomes the home base for this church at Philippi. So Paul and Silas, they start going around the city uh, and telling people about Jesus and People start coming to faith, and people start getting baptized, and this little church in Philippi starts to grow, and it adds to its number. Well, Paul and Silas attract a bit of a groupie as they are traveling around. There's a young slave girl who starts to follow them, and uh, she's kind of lurking in the shadows wherever they go, and, and they notice her, but she, she's also very vocal. Um, she, has, she is possessed by a demon. And she incredibly, inexplicably, she proclaims whenever these men talk about Jesus, she says, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this is true. This is, of course, true. And, you know, this is a valuable thing she's saying, but she says it so often and so many times, so relentlessly, day after day, constantly saying the same refrain, that Paul starts to get kind of annoyed by it. And so, bothered by this, he actually casts out the demon from this young girl. Um, now, the demon, the, possess, the demon who possessed her actually enabled her to sort of tell the fortunes for other people. So when the demon is cast out, so goes her ability to tell the fortune. Well, her owners are, of course, furious about this because she was a moneymaker for them. And so they're, they're you know, enraged. And so they tell the magistrate that there are these Jewish people in our city and they're causing all kinds of trouble. So Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Before that, they're beaten. Uh, they're beaten horribly in a very graphic and gruesome way. They're thrown into prison. And, you know, what do they decide to do in prison? You may remember the story. They start praising God. It's night, and they start worshiping God, singing praises to their Savior, even while they're locked in chains. Well, God causes an earthquake which breaks open all the doors, but Paul and Silas don't go anywhere. I mean, they could have escaped. The doors were open for them to escape, but they don't go anywhere. They just stay there. Well, the Philippian jailer had one, one job, just one job, and that job was to make sure that prisoners did not escape. And so with the doors open, it's dark, there's, a, a, of course, a loud uh, ruckus, the Philippian jailer thinks, well, these people, I've lost my prisoners. The one thing I was supposed to do, I didn't do right. So he decides to take his own life. He grabs his sword. He's about ready to fall on his own sword. And before he can, Paul and Silas say, no, no, stop. We're still here. Don't go anywhere. We're still, we're still here. Well, he was so amazed by this. His adrenaline's still pumping. He's shaking. He says to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? How can I know this God that you're worshiping? He turns in faith to Jesus Christ. He goes home. He tells the story to his wife and kids. They put their faith in Christ and are baptized. And so this church continues to grow. This jailer and his whole family become part of this new church plant in Philippi, which again keeps growing as people respond to the gospel. When the Roman government realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, they immediately released them. But you can see, you can see why Paul has this profound sense of affection for the Philippians. I mean, they had seen some stuff together. You know, you go through certain things together and you're just like, okay, there's a bond that takes place. They had been through some stuff together. A few years later, when Paul writes this letter, when we're studying, they would, they would be the ones who would continue to support Paul and his ministry. They were true partners in his ministry. Now, here's why Paul feels the way he does, and this is our second point. Fellow sharers in grace are united by a common vision and a common power, Christ and His glory. So, yes, I mean, Paul enjoys these people, and we might say, as a friend of mine says, he has this phrase, you know, so-and-so is an easy hang so, you know, some people, you're with them, and they just kind of wear you out and exhaust you, and other people you're energized by. Well, he, he's, these, are, these are an easy hang to him. He loves these people. He delights in them. He's, he's refreshed by them. He's encouraged by them. But it's more than that. They have this common purpose, 
They had this common power. As fellow sharers of God's grace, they become partners in this gospel. And this is a phrase he uses throughout his letter. They shared a common vision, which was to see Christ glorified as more people become worshipers of the risen Savior. And they shared a common power, which was really a supernatural power. It was the indwelling presence of the risen Christ. If you go back before Jesus was born, you read any Greek philosophy, any of the Greek orators, you, of course, remember the name of the most popular, I guess, the most famous of all the Greek philosophers was Aristotle. And Aristotle said that, you know, in antiquity there were three kinds of friendship, three types of friendship. The first type of friendship Aristotle called a friendship of utility. And what he meant by that is this is, a, this, is, this is a sort of friend that you're a friend with that person because he or she can do something for you. You know, they, they, can, they can offer you something. They can, they can provide something that you're lacking. Uh, it, was, it was a friendship based on what you can do for me. As long as you can get me tickets to the game, give me rides to the places I need to go, get me in with the in crowd, support my habit, whatever it is, then we're friends. But when the time comes and you're no longer able to help me, or you can't provide what I need, then the friendship is over. You have any friends like that? You know they're friends with you because of what you can do for them. The second type of friendship in the ancient world was, called a, was a friendship of pleasure. And this is, I mean, this is just where two people really, really enjoy each other, and they, they get pleasure from being around each other. Um, you're friends because you make each other laugh. You enjoy each other's company. You, in some cases, those friendships are based purely on physical or, or sexual relationships, and you bring each other pleasure, and so there's that friendship. Now, of course, these relationships don't last, uh, but there are many relationships. Sadly, even many marriages begin this way, uh, just based on this pleasure, this mutual pleasure. But then there was the third type of friendship, is what Aristotle called the perfect friendship. It's a friendship of shared values. In other words, your friendship is really rooted in something bigger than yourselves. It goes beyond your personal needs, wants, desires, and it's anchored in this shared common vision, a common purpose. Now, this is actually the rarest, of course, type of friendship. Um, and, and sadly, you know, it's one that we often don't even realize that the, the value of it, just how precious it is until that other person moves or, or leaves or dies or is no longer in our life. But this is the deepest, richest form of friendship. And this is the sort of friendship that Paul had with the believers at Philippi. It was rooted in, it was anchored in something so much uh, more important and deeper than just personal satisfaction. Their friendship was anchored in the hope of the gospel, the love of God in Christ, the richness of God's salvation. Now this is, you know, we, we have this, we know we have an, a, a command, an obligation to love everyone, even our enemies. And we have to do this. God commands us to do this. He empowers us to do it by His Spirit. But I will say this, it's probably best, wisest of us to invest most of our time in that third type of friendship where there is a common bond, a shared value. 
And this is what we enjoy, of course, as believers, as part of the Christian community. It's why, for example, we are at the elder level sort of racking our brains, thinking how can we safely and effectively and sufficiently kind of move us toward phase two because God's people need to be together. We have this shared value, this shared purpose and experience, and that was the kind of friendship that Paul had with the people at Philippi. Right from the very beginning, this church, they just got it. Now, of course, it was a spirit-enabled ability, but they got it. They understood what it meant to be citizens of a new kingdom, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. That it, meant, it, meant a re, it meant a new priority. It meant new affections. It meant a new loyalty. Rather than to the king Caesar, then actually the king Jesus. And a new purpose in life, a true partnership in the gospel. But it wasn't just, of course, ministry success that Paul wanted for these people. He wanted something else. And really for every reader of this letter, look at verses 8 through 11. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and, be, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's desire, which was manifest in his ongoing prayer life, was that these Philippians, and really that we by extension, would grow in our love. Now, oddly enough, he doesn't say our love for what? He doesn't say the direction of that love. It's really, he kind of leaves that open for interpretation, which I believe is actually intentional. I believe this is a love that's meant to be multidirectional. Of course, it's a love for God. It's a love for neighbor. It's a love for the household of faith, for other believers. So Paul prays that these believers at Philippi would grow in their love, a greater love for God, a greater love for neighbor, a greater love for a lost world. And this was actually an important prayer for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is, and we'll find out later, there were two ladies in the church, two women who were fighting with each other, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, who were at odds with each other, and they were threatening to tear apart the church. Of course, this is not just true in first century Mediterranean world. It's true in our day, in, in our area, when people are at odds with each other, when there's unresolved conflict in the church, it can tear the church apart. And so Paul says, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. You should love one another, defer to one another, forgive one another. Such an important prayer. And it's not just a generic sort of ethereal love. It's a knowledgeable love. Praise that they would grow, they would love with knowledge and all discernment, verse 9. In other words, it is a love rooted in God's self-revelation. I wrote an uh, essay recently for this ministry called Speak for the Unborn, and um, I was asked to, to write on how the church can, can work together to help protect and defend the least of these, the most helpless of all people, the, the, the unborn. And, uh, it's actually going to be published tomorrow. Um, I'll, I'll add a link to my Facebook page if you want to read it. If you don't, uh, no worries. But in this, in this article, I was trying to com uh, communicate was... One of the points I make is that the, the, the Bible is not ultimately a book about us. It is the self-revelation of a God who spared no expense to redeem, to buy out of slavery a broken and sin-cursed world. Consequently, our gatherings, 
and our ministries and our worship and our discipleship should be God-centered, not man-centered. This love that Paul yearns for these Philippians to experience and grow in is a love that actually is rooted in God's self-revelation, how God has revealed Himself to be throughout history. Paul prays that they will approve what is excellent, which just means that they'll be able to discern what is best, what is acceptable, what is pleasing to their Redeemer, the God who redeemed them, so that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, certainly, Paul's desire is for them that they would lead lives that are ethically pure. God is glorified by our obedience. And Paul wants these Philippians to live in such a way that they obey all the commands of God. But Paul's prayer here is not that they would work harder independently at moving toward obedience. The phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness, is uh, you know the New Testament written in Greek. And this is a... It's, it's a Greek passive participle. We don't get a lot into Greek grammar and tense and so on because it's not always necessary. It's not always helpful, but here it is very helpful. It just means that the production of fruit that Paul prays for these people would actually be God's doing, not their doing. Fruit here is, is, a, fruit is used throughout the New Testament. And, and there's a bit of a, a range of ways it's, it's, it's interpreted here it, It's a reference to right living or ethical behavior. And Paul says the only way they would produce any fruit is as God produced the fruit of righteousness in them by His grace. So what does Paul hope for every reader of this letter, which includes us? It's the third question that I said we would answer. It is that that, that God's people would so rest in the gospel would so depend on the Spirit of God, the finished work of Christ, that they would produce a harvest of good fruits, acts of obedience that glorify God and benefit our neighbor. Now let me sum it up this way. This is our third point. I'm kind of borrowing this phraseology from the Scottish uh, preacher John Kerr, but he says this, the state of being declared righteous is a seed that produces a Christian harvest. So good. And this is not just saying, and this is kind of a popular phrase right now, that, that the essence of sanctification is actually just resting in our justification. It's not, I'm not saying that necessarily, although certainly sanctification cannot be less than that. That is looking back constantly and resting in the finished work of Christ. But what, what Paul is saying here is that salvation is God's gift entirely from beginning to end. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we recognize our rebellion against this God who made us for Himself, when we turn to, to Jesus in faith, which itself is an act that God enables, God then forgives us, He justifies us, He declares us not guilty, and He begins to bear fruit through us by the work of His Spirit, through the power of the gospel. God's work in us enables us to bear the fruit that He calls us to bear. Now, this is a theme that's going to come up in every chapter of this book, every chapter of this letter. Paul will say things like this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says, but actually it's God working in you to do it. Paul will say, let your life be worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And then he'll say, but really, 
It's only, the only way you're able to do it is because Christ is in you. Paul will say, live righteously. But then he says, but it's really the righteousness that God requires is not the kind that comes from obedience to the law, but actually it's by faith in the work of Jesus. Now, this is not to, to minimize the importance of struggling toward obedience. We do struggle and we wrestle and we pray and we take great pains to mortify the flesh and all of those things. So I'm not minimizing that at all. Those are important aspects of the Christian life. We don't just sort of this old Keswick uh, idea, you sort of let go and let God. That's not the point. We should struggle. But even when we do obey, all we can say is, thank you, Jesus. That was you. That was you bringing about obedience in me. It's all because of grace. Now, it really takes us back to the beginning, doesn't it? Back to the greeting. See, recognizing that it's all by God's grace really changes everything. It changes the way we relate to other people. It changes the way that we uh, engage our neighbor. It changes the way that we worship. It changes the way that we think about God. There's a, a preface to one of my favorite books in, in which the author says that when I, when, I, when, I, when I really grasped grace, I was undone. It made me a better father. It made me a father that my children actually loved. It made me a husband that my wife delighted in. It made me a pastor that people uh, enjoyed being under my service. So grace, it changes everything. That understanding that it's all because of Christ. Now, I mentioned some of the suffering, some of the things that the Philippians would go through. And, of course, we're going to go through those things. We do go through those same things. How do we find hope in our suffering? How do we navigate, again, the unevenness of, this, of life on this broken planet? Well, it's by knowing that I am loved by God in Christ through no merit of my own, and with a love that can never be taken from me. And not only that cannot be taken from me, it's a love that even I cannot lose myself. I cannot even lose this love. And because God loves me this way, He is working in this suffering. He doesn't promise that He's going to end it all, the suffering. He's working in and through this suffering in such a way that is for my good and His glory, and this God can be trusted. What's the comfort for the beleaguered, the beaten down, the exhausted? It's in knowing that the Spirit of Christ is at work in me, even at this present moment, molding me and shaping me into His image and preserving me for the glory that awaits. God's grace is comfort for the beleaguered, and it's the only hope for the wanderer. You know that old hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? prone to leave the God I love? That's actually my story, and it's your story. You say, I would never leave the God who saved me. I would never leave. Well, you have to understand, wandering doesn't simply mean walking away. We can wander just as easily and perhaps more readily by actually trusting in our own goodness than actually turning our back on God. Because then we have other things that become our functional Savior, like our church attendance, our baptism, our giving, our efforts, our, our, our kindness toward our neighbor, whatever it is. That's actually what we're resting in. 
And they become, as Tim Keller has said so often, these functional saviors. We rest in what we can do and what we have done rather than what Christ has done. Old Testament scholar uh, Ian Duguid says this, Perhaps we should feel every bit as concerned about the aspects of the law we find ourselves keeping as we do about the ones we are obviously breaking. And that's because it is our perceived goodness that may be more of a threat to us than the potential of outright rebellion. It's our perceived goodness. See, if we believe that if we contribute something to our salvation, it's sort of Jesus plus blank, whatever we offer, then that means that God can only ask so much of us because He's done His part and we've done our part. And, but if we understand that, as Paul has said, it's all from Him from beginning to end. He's the starter of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. Then there's no limit to what He can ask of us. And the Philippians, they understood this. This is why they were eager to surrender everything they had for Christ. They knew that God was the one who saved them and God was going to keep them till the end. I had a very good friend growing up in Dayton, Ohio, and we lived in the city where our houses were very close to each other. He was two doors down, but uh, we we might as well have been next door. We saw each other every day, played baseball together, hung out all the time. His name was Eric, and just uh, just a wonderful family. Loved their family. His dad's passed on. His mom, the only connection I have with her now is by Facebook, but she's just a sweet lady. They were charismatic Pentecostals, and they believed that you could lose your salvation. In fact, they believed that God, and I never said it this way, but they believed that God kind of had the ledger open, and on a good day, if you were good and you were obedient, you were over on the good side, the approved side. On the day when you really blew it, you sinned, you were moved over to the condemned side, and whenever you would you know, seek forgiveness from God, you'd be moved back over to the approved side. Well, this poor friend of mine, I mean, he lived in a perpetual state of nervousness because he was always worried about, and he would say this to me a lot, his constant fear was, what if I sin and then I I lose my life? I get hit by a truck. What if I sin and I don't realize it, but there's sin and I'm over on the bad side, I'm over on the condemned side, and then I die, then I'm going to be forever separated from God. Now, we know that that's not how it works. We know that that salvation is fully uh, in Christ. We know that when God forgives us, He forgives us of all of our past sins, our present sins, even our future sins. We are declared not guilty of all of our sins. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we still need to have this pattern, this rhythm of repentance and for seeking forgiveness, but we have been justified. Positionally, we are right with God, and we know that. But still, we still often live as though the completion of our salvation is really dependent on us. What if I fail? What if I don't live up to God's standards? What if I, I turn away? What if I lose interest? What if I don't maintain my focus? I must maintain my focus. The late pastor Jerry Bridges once wrote, We're saved by grace, but we live by the sweat of our own performance. We're always challenging ourselves and one another to try harder. We seem to believe success in the Christian life is basically up to us. Our commitment, our discipline, our zeal, with some help from God along the way. The realization that my daily relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Christ. 
instead of my own performance, is a very freeing and joyous experience. But it's not meant to be a one-time experience. This truth needs to be reaffirmed daily. And here's what we're going to do as we work our way through Philippians. Now, there, there are going to be things, don't worry, there are going to be things I'm going to tell you to do. You know, Someone came up to you at the end of the first service and said, okay, still, but what am I supposed to do? I said, okay, I'll get to that. Okay, I'm going to give you plenty of do, to do. Get your papers out. Get your iPads right. I'm going to give you so much to do, you're not going to be able to know what to do. Now, I'm half kidding about that, but there are going to be things to do. But we're going to keep coming back. We're going to keep coming back because that's what Paul does. He keeps coming back to the finished work of Jesus, the grace that is ours in Christ. And it's a grace that I point out in this, this article. It's a grace that will move us to obedience. It is a grace that will spur our hearts toward love and good deeds. It is a grace that will fuel our grateful worship. And it's a grace that will actually enable and equip our love for God and our love for neighbors. So we're going to pray to God in that direction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its power. Thank you for this beautiful, incredible, gospel-rich letter that we know has been theopneustos, breathed out by you for our benefit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And I pray that you would, by your Spirit, you would enable us to believe and to really rest in the reality that it, it is grace that has saved us. It is grace that will bring us all the way home. By grace, we have been redeemed. By grace, we will persevere. It is by your grace and because of your love that we are not consumed, but we were, we were held fast safely to enjoy you to be glorified and to, to walk with you for all eternity. Have mercy on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.